I believe that veterans are the key to unlocking America's next golden age. By empowering and influencing one million veterans to transition well and become leaders in their communities, we can unlock our country's destiny and continue to change the world. My name is Bernard Bergen. Justin Iswala, co-founder of TechWald, has 14 years of active duty experience in both the enlisted and officer communities. After several years as a surface warfare officer, Justin resigned his commission in 2012 and transitioned to the tech sector, working for IBM and Oracle in various sales roles. His experiences navigating the high-tech sector merged with his passion for helping veterans, spurring him to start TechQuality where he focuses on strategic outreach and recruitment. Justin is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. He has an MBA from Georgetown University and a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. Justin lives in Annapolis, Maryland with his family. All right, our first question, very scripted format, but I think it always allows such a unique tailored perspective. When you were first joining the military, what would you say to your younger self? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. I mean, obviously, there's a huge culture shift moving away from being an 18-year-old high school graduate, just sort of wearing the uniform and you know learning the, the rules and regulations and how to walk and talk, I think is a concept that you hear a lot about early on in your life. Um, but, but I think that the military really sort of highlights what the good and poor leadership. So I think, you know, identifying good leaders and really entrusting them with you and your personnel is really key. So identify good leaders and what you learn, what your next steps are, and identify good leaders. And when you do find them, tap into their expertise and trust them to help guide you. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Would your younger self had resisted that any, or would you just say, hey, this is great advice. I kind of see where you're going with this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any 10-year-olds that don't resist authority. Um, <laughs> and I think the military does a pretty good job of really indoctrinating you to a culture where there is rank and, and there are rules. And if you don't follow those rules, there there will be repercussions, sometimes in the form of, of injury or, or death. And, and so I, I think... Um, I probably wouldn't have listened to myself, <laughs> unfortunately. It's just kind of the, the, the human nature of it. But, yeah. but I think that I would have saved myself a lot of pain. I would have learned a lot quicker had I sort of really been more trusting of authority in the military and good got leaders. Got it. Got it. I think that's great advice, too, because on the one hand, when you join the military, you join to be a part of something but then you still resist becoming a part of the whole. Yeah. You know, I enlisted at 18. Um, and, you know, I think that the culture, or at least the culture that, that I, in community that I was in, I was enlisted and I was always going to be enlisted because enlisted personnel, they get their hands dirty, they roll up their sleeves and, and they do the work. And the officers are, are merely there for parade and ceremony. <laughs> um, but as I got a little bit older and, and started to, actually be mentored by some officers at my unit. It was only then when I really started listening that I saw the full picture, um, that I saw the purpose and reasoning behind having a rank structure and, and an officer corps and an enlisted corps. And that really, really made me buy into the entire 
organization and eventually going into uh, becoming an officer. Wow. Wow. And that's really such a good tale of the tape because, again, you joined to serve, but your impact as you served, you know, expanded as you transitioned from being enlisted to being an officer. And I think that's great for our listeners to hear because without knowing it, we put in our own ceilings on our military careers. Right. Yep. That is a good point. I frequently ran into people, you know, I went out and became a surface warfare officer and spent about six years on board ships and had the fortunate opportunity to lead divisions of personnel and engineers and technicians. And boy, I'll tell you what, amount of sailors that I ran into that actually would be open about their desire to become officers, I could probably count on one hand, which is unfortunate. And I I think that we should be doing a, a better job of promoting a Mustang career, which is a Mustang is somebody who's spent a certain amount of time in, as an enlisted man and, and then moved in, into the officer corps. Right, right. And just having seen it all, you're a stronger problem solver for the men and women you lead. Yeah, I would like to think so. I mean, it's hard to, comp- I mean, that's comparing apples to oranges. I don't know what I would be like if, if I'd stayed enlisted for 14 years instead of making a switch over to the officer corps halfway through. How, how would that change my perspective? How would that change my leadership style? I don't know. I guess what I do know is that being on both sides, it does give me a little bit more of a well-rounded perspective, which I guess could be, I mean, that's definitely a, a net positive. Yeah, yeah. Completely agree. When people reach out to you now, maybe their kids are considering serving or they're considering serving. What advice do you normally share? I absolutely promote it. I've actually been uh, an admissions officer for the Naval Academy. So I would travel around the country talking with high school kids about the merits of serving and then also attending a, a service academy. So it's something that I'm very comfortable with, but I think the real test is that it's definitely something that I talk to my children about, the importance of serving. I definitely feel more connected with what's going on with our nation, um, the health of the nation, the foreign perspective of Americans, because I have served and I have had had a lot of interaction with with people from other cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it just, it makes me proud, even though... Or times when you know you're on a ship and you're standing in the mid watch and it's 2 a.m. and there's nothing going on and you're probably thinking a, a drone could do my job or <laughs> something like that. But after serving for 14 years, there's not a single thing that happened to me or that I volunteered for or that I was voluntold to do that, that I don't regret or that I do regret it. It was all good. Yep. And I find like that's the typical story where just have been served. It broadens your perspective, it builds your worldview, and you just understand that everything we enjoy is because someone served before us, and you're just excited to have done your part. Yep. Okay, this one is typically the question that gives our guests pause. One word answer. When I say military transitions, you say? Difficult. Difficult. Difficult, difficult, difficult. And I wouldn't say it once, I'd say it three times. And if you give me a minute to sort of expand on that, I was one of the fortunate ones. I mean, you looked at my resume back in 2012 when I was getting out of the military, you'd probably say, wow, this guy's pretty marketable. You know, he's probably worth a decent amount in commercial sector. And, you know, I I had a college degree, I I had a master's degree, but most importantly, I, I was confident, I could communicate well. And at the time, I really didn't see any career path 
that I couldn't go down if I truly put my mind to it. Uh-huh. And what I found was it wasn't the professional changes or the financial gaps or just the language barrier that you really sort of are faced with when transitioning out of the military and into the private sector. It was more of an emotional difficulty, just sort of, you know, coming to terms with, I don't wear my rank on my collar anymore. I don't wear a uniform. People look at me differently. You know, I used to get saluted and people would say they're so proud of me and that goes away. And that, that was challenging, even for someone like me, who all the other stuff more or less fell into place. So I didn't have to worry about getting the job. I didn't have to worry about mortgage or, or feeding my family. And so when you do have those issues, and then you compound, compound that with the emotional challenges that a transition can, can give you, it, I talk to you know, hundreds of veterans a month that are going through this process. Right. And there is a sense of despair, not from... Not from a tactical perspective, but from, again, you know, an, an emotional perspective. You can tell that there's despair and, and some semblance of suffering there. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you shared that because one thing that hits me as I get to talk to amazing guests like yourself is that no one's immune to what transition feels like. You know, <laughs> like, like you're losing a sense of belonging, even though you're transitioning to, at times, something that's equally as important, you know? Yeah. Well, importance is, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? In the military, we are told from the very beginning that you are important because you are supporting our mission. And our mission is to defend the Constitution of the United States and spread spread democracy throughout the world or whatever the Navy's slogan is at, at the time. And so when you go and you work for Corporation X, where, you know, the mission is to make money. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the mission is to have a healthy earnings report. The mission is to make sure that your boss doesn't get fired. Those are things that just don't resonate as easily with a veteran because they're used to these, I mean, missions that spread across the globe and right. that no matter who you are, you're going to get. You're going to say, wow, that's incredible. You're defending freedom or, or whatever it is. That's really cool. Thank you. And you just right. don't get that in the corporate sector. Yeah, I think that's very profound. And I think, you know, as our listeners hear that and internalize that they're not the only one feeling that, it will help them just stay the course, whatever they decided to do next. Agreed. Right. Now, this is where you get to brag a bit about your current work and just what excites you about your work and the impact that your work is having currently. So tell us about what you do and... A little bit of your founding story. Yeah, well, it's certain won't, it won't be anything to brag about. My story is certainly one where you'll, you'll physically hear me swallow my pride on several occasions. So I'll do my best to paint a, a beautiful picture, but it certainly <laughs> was not the case. I transitioned out of the military in 2012, so I'm about five years out. One of the reasons I decided to get out of the military was that I didn't like the promotion process in the military. I have time and rank. So you're an O2 for a certain amount of time and you're an O3 for a certain amount of time. And there's really nothing that you can do to change that. Obviously that, that, that changes a little bit when you get into the higher ranks, but I felt frustrated with the fact that I'd bust my butt to be, you know, the number one ranked junior officer on my ship, for example, but I'm getting paid the same as the guy or gal that's ranked at the bottom. And I, and I get it. I didn't join the military to make money. 
honor, courage, commitment. Those are the things that I bought into as I should have, right? That's, that's important. It's right. important. That's an important distinction. But at a certain point, I found that my priorities began to shift. My values remained unchanged. I remained committed to serving my country, but I found myself less and less inspired on a day-to-day basis to go in and serve my sailors. And I ultimately found that I wanted to serve my family and give them the best life that I could. And we live in a great country where we've got amazing neighborhoods and amazing schools and, and you can send your kids to all that, but guess what? It costs money, right? right. So I physically, I mean, I, I can remember exactly where I was standing when I realized that I had now had a new mission and that was to make money. Mm-hmm. And of course it, it mattered how I made it, right? That was important to me, but that was now a factor. Joining the military at age 18, Deciding to go to the Naval Academy, become an officer, money was not a factor in those decisions. And now it kind of became a big one. So that was kind of my narrative for why I was getting out. And as I had conversations with friends and family and people in my network, I often heard, well, if you're looking for a meritocracy, if you're looking to be compensated for the value that you bring to your organization, instead of a time and rank promotion process, you should go into sales. Right. Now, The first time I heard that, I was so repulsed. I just stopped listening to anything that the person said to me over the phone. I said, okay, you're just not very smart. You clearly don't get me. Sales is way beneath me. That's a grind. I mean, when I think of sales, I think of the used car salesman Uh, that's trying to sell enlisted sailors, you know, used cars for 18% interest right outside 32nd Street in, in San Diego, right? Those guys wear cheap suits. That's not my brand. Looking back on it, it was a very short-sighted, almost ignorant way to approach it. So after about 15 people said, Justin, you should go into sales, you should go into sales, I decided to start doing some research. And I Mm -hmm. started talking with sales professionals that were in my network across a variety of industries, from thin services to biotech and high tech. And what I found was, for the first time in my life, I felt like I had found or really stumbled upon a tribe of individuals. I use the word tribe with purpose because these people had similar communication styles, Mm -hmm. uh, similar business acumen and EQ. So I I really felt that this was kind of like a special community. They were all making a lot of money. They weren't afraid to talk about it. Um, They were smart. They had, they had access to those meetings and those boardrooms that are kind of untouchable. And so I really felt naturally bound to becoming an account executive. And I decided to go into to high tech because it, you know, I'd been told that it was a, a white hot space and you could really advance your career in an industry like that. So I went out and started applying to, to companies, technology companies, and I got rejected by about 25 and not a single company decided to move forward with me to a second or third round interview. Wow. And when I would ask for feedback, their response was, well, Justin, you know, we love everything about you. Your comm style is great. You clearly have a, have a ton of confidence. You're almost overqualified from an academic perspective, but here's the deal. You've never sold before. You've never carried quota. And this is a very competitive industry and you represent a massive cost for us to train and get you up to speed. I mean, it could be six to 12 months before you close a deal. So this was the first time in my transition process where I realized that there were certain career paths outside of the military that at age 32 were almost unavailable for me. And high-tech sales was one of them. 
And again, that was a pride swallowing moment for me. So I ended up taking a job as a project manager with IBM and it was the worst job that I've ever had. And I don't want to talk bad about IBM. I think it was just, you know, it was a static environment. I was sitting at a cubicle from nine to five every day. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no professional development occurring. I wasn't learning. And my management team lived 2000 miles away. So if you're looking to be a, a leader of industry or to start your own company one day, I knew I was being honest with myself. I knew that I wasn't learning the skills that I would one day need. And when I say it was a bad job, keep in mind, I was an E1 in the, in the Navy at one point. So I've, I've scrubbed <laughs> toilets, I've swapped decks, I know what suck looks like, and I know what it smells like, and this, was, this would top it. Um, wow. So about nine months into the job, and I'm, I'm, I'm not very happy. From, from the outside looking in, family members and friends said, oh, wow, you're with, you're with IBM, a respected company, you're making decent money. But I knew on the inside, you know, things that was not the reality. And about nine months into the job, I had a, a watershed moment. Um, this guy walked into the office that I'd never seen before. He was wearing a suit and tie. And he proceeded to the conference room where there were about 10 to 15 project leads and executives sitting down. And he stood up in front of them and turned on the projector and gave a two-hour PowerPoint presentation. Wow. Now, you know, I'd be willing to bet that most people that are listening to this podcast have sat in on a PowerPoint presentation. They're not very engaging. You know, people fall asleep. They're yawning. That was not the case this time. Whoa. There was definitely a dynamic energy buzz to the room. I mean, he was engaging with his audience. His audience was engaging back with him. He was making them laugh. He was, their heads were nodding. I mean, he more or less had them eaten out of the palm of his hand. And although I couldn't hear what he was saying because the door was closed, I could see him through the viewing window. And at that moment, I knew that whatever he was saying, he was doing a damn good job of saying it. Right. And he walked out of there at uh, about two o'clock on a Tuesday and got into the elevator, went down to the parking lot, got into his Porsche and drove off. And I never saw him again. Now I tell this story because this is kind of the impetus for what I decided to do. But I turned to my coworker and I said, who was that? And he informed me that that was an account executive with SAP and that he sold cloud-based software. And that was when two things, I realized two things. The first is that this guy's making three times as much as me and he's my age. And the second thing is it's two o'clock on a Tuesday. For all I know, this guy is going to pick his kids up from school and take them to soccer practice. He had autonomy. He had independence. And most importantly, he was in control of the hours in his day something that I never had. Um, And so this kind of really jumpstarted me to reach out to some of the companies that had originally rejected me. And at that time, I had about nine months of experience and Oracle decided to take a chance on me. It was my first job in sales. I was with them for two years and then ultimately went back to grad school. I'm a glutton for punishment and started TechQuald, where our mission is to train and place transitioning veterans into the high tech space, primarily into sales roles. And that's where I am right now. Wow. And what I love about your story and your transition into TechQuald is you understand firsthand how to get people to where they need to be for a veteran to go from serving to sales. How does your program close some gaps in the process of a veteran who says, hey, I would like to transition to sales? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I'm going to sort of break it down into hard skills and soft skills. First off, veterans come out of the military with immensely valuable and sought after soft skills. Mm -hmm. Okay. Attention to detail, 
they do what they say they're going to do, integrity, all that stuff, right? All that stuff that we're known for. But the fact is, is there are a lot of jobs out there where soft skills aren't going to win, win the day, right? And, and high-tech sales is, is one of them. A lot of people think, well, as long as you're a people person, as long as you are good at speaking, you'll do good in sales. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. There is actually a process involved with solution selling. And that's primarily what we teach. So whether you've been flying an F-18 for the last 10 years or you're an enlisted electronics technician, you don't know a whole lot about selling and you don't know a whole lot about the IT industry. So we teach you the hard skills that when you combine them with the soft skills that we already know that you have, it's going to make you a very viable candidate. Very cool. Very cool. And I love how clear that is where, you know, a service member who has that aha moment similar to what you did and said, hey, I would love to be a part of this industry, a part of the sales force of this industry. What do I need to know? A company like yours really just speaks to the gap and helps them plug in on what they can learn and the time frame to actually be able to execute those skills. Yes, correct. Yep, exactly. Love it. Love it. Well, we're going to tap into some more of our questions. Now, in your role, there's so much of your military values that you bring to the table. I know it's probably every last one of them every second of the day. But if there was one that you would highlight for other service members that really is a game changer, what military value would that be? I'll put it to you like this. The, the CEO of TechQual, Jim Sheriff, who is a uh, former high-tech executive, did some time at HP and some time at Cisco. When I was, had my initial conversation with him about the idea behind TechQual, it wasn't even called TechQual at the time. One of the first things he ever said to me is that he's worked with a lot of veterans throughout his 35-year career. And quite frankly, doing what you say you're going to do, there aren't enough people in the high-tech space that can actually do that. So accountability and integrity sort of, I mean, those are kind of like one word attributes that to me equate into, you know, if you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, you know, you show up five minutes early. If you say you're going to have deliverable in by Friday, close of business, you send it in Friday morning. So really sort of following through on your promises. It's kind of like the quote, I I can't remember who said it, but you know, 99% of life is showing up, right? And that's kind of how I look at it. If you can follow through on your commitments, even if you know, you're only given an 80% solution sometimes, that's better than just going dark. Right, right. Very transformational. I really like that piece of advice. Now, in your professional role, I'm pretty sure you're strategically connecting to employers all the time. What typically do you share with employers who are specifically looking to employ veterans? Yeah, the first question I'll ask them is why? I mean, I think that will tell you a lot about their true motives. Sometimes you don't ask those easy questions because you just assume that it's one of five standard answers, right? Mm -hmm. And I ask that question because I don't want to hear that, yeah, we're just really patriotic and and we 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 love veterans. Because if you look at the statistics, there is not an unemployment problem in the veteran community. In fact, veteran unemployment is better than the national average. I think we're at about, I don't know, five and a half percent, which is exceptional. And it hasn't always been like this, but veterans more or less have 
a lot of opportunities pushed in their direction in a lot of different ways. But what you don't want to see are companies that want to hire veterans out of pity or out of patriotism. Pity, first off, because that's just poor judgment. You should never make a business decision based on that you feel bad for a certain demographic. And the second one, patriotism, at some point, you can wave the flag all you want, but your shoulder's going to eventually get tired, right? And so what are you going to do when you've hired 30 veterans into your organization without a thought of how are you going to retain them? How are you going to train them? How are you going to build a community that supports them in the same way that the military did for them over the last X amount of years? So it's sort of like you ask them, why do you want to hire veterans? Because you can tell a lot. Are they just going in head first without a thought of what's going to happen three, five years down the line? Or are they serious? Have they thought through this? Right. Very insightful. And I know that the employers that listen to this, it will help them step back from the table and maybe consult some experts before they build out a veterans program or they just go on a veterans hiring spree. Because the one thought that really resonates with me, you shared how do you build a community that supports them just like the military did? And it's just camaraderie. It's just esprit de corps, just the things that knit us together. And in many companies, even though they have a mandate to bring in veterans, they don't have that back end of support. First off, you know, you're dealing with a somewhat vulnerable demographic, right? These people have been in the military for four or 24 years or whatever it is, they don't know a whole lot about what their value is on the marketplace. They don't know what an interview cycle looks like, what questions to ask. And so I think you need to do your homework and recognize that hiring veterans and retaining veterans, more importantly, is different than doing the same with a, with a college grad or an experienced hire. And oftentimes, veterans get put into one bucket or the other, and that's I think one of the reasons why there's such a high washout rate with veterans. So, right, right. I don't know if that helps, but yeah, it's very clear. Very clear. When you get to talk to service members right at the beginning of their transitions process, what do you usually suggest to them? Yeah, there's a lot of obvious ones. I mean, seek counsel, leverage the resources out there. I think that there are a lot of organizations that don't have as small of a focus as they should. And rather than really only focusing on veterans that want to be welders or really only focusing on veterans that live in a certain part of the country or that are going to a certain school, they say, we help all veterans because all veterans are the same, right? So if you're going to leverage a resource, whether that's to get a job or to get your college tuition paid for, really understand what that organization's intentions are. If it's too broad of a scope, I would steer clear. Because again, you know, veterans are, are not, we don't fall under sort of one profile. We're very different across branches, across communities. And I, I mean, talk to tons of veterans every day. That diversity in that demographic couldn't be more apparent to me after having done what, what I've done for the last few years. Right, right. And is your advice to veteran support organizations pretty similar about just niche down to exactly why veterans should connect with you or is there any difference? Yeah. Well, I, so I, I think that, I mean, when I was getting out, right, there's this, and I don't know where it comes from. I do not know where this comes from, but there is a sense that, well, I'm a veteran. I've served my country. Things will be easy for me or things will be handed to me on a silver platter and I won't really have to work hard. And that's the worst kind of attitude that you could have, period, 
regardless of whether you're a veteran or not, regardless of whether you're 18 or 88, if you think that people are going to bring things to you for free because they pity you or because they look up to you for, for having sacrificed, that's wrong. It's just wrong. So it's kind of just a, a, a cautionary warning to organizations and veterans alike. Yeah, that's very clear. I think it's going to be well received as well. All right. What book would you recommend for the Veterans Leadership Blog Podcast community? So there is a, I mentioned Tribes earlier, and uh, there is a, a great book called Tribes by Seth Godin. It's a few years old. I don't know, maybe five or 10 years old. I, I just read it for the first time about six months ago. That's kind of why it's top of mind. I think it really helps you not find your tribe, because let's face it, if you know the military is your tribe, the Navy is your tribe the SEAL community or the Intel community is your tribe. You've lived it, you've sacrificed for it, you get it. And so leaving that tribe can, again, really add to that despair and feeling of, you know, I'm lost, right? And I think the book Tribes really helps to understand why tribes are formed and what makes a tribe separate from just a group of people. And when you understand what a tribe is, it helps you take a step back and really it helps you identify those attributes and uh, that are important to you. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to, to find my tribe relatively early and it takes other people less amount of time. It takes some people more time and, and some people never do, but it helped me at least understand. And I didn't read this five years ago, so it didn't help in my transition, but I do recommend it to veterans that I speak with. And I have gotten positive feedback from them that it has helped. Wow. Wow. I think the recommendation and that explanation really uh, deepens the resolve to read uh, tribes. I read it a while back, but not in recent history. So I, I need to go ahead and revisit that. I just think, like you said, when you find your tribe, especially after being in a tribe for so long, you can reconnect to the values that really help you stay on course for your North Star and just the goals that you have in your life. Yeah. And I mean, maybe after reading that, you'll identify with building your own tribe. That's the ultimate goal for me. You know, I mean, I, I wanted to start a company and I, I sort of gave myself a 10 year window, right? I'm going to acquire the skills that I need, you know, in the next 10 years so that I can start my own company. Well, starting your own company is kind of like starting a tribe. And there's certain things that make tribes stronger and attract more members to it. And so understanding that is great for anybody that wants to go into startups. Wow. Wow. That's great advice, especially from a founder like yourself. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be many more veterans founders as veterans continue to transition and transition well. Yeah. I, and just to make a, a quick comment on the veteran founder thing, I mean, maybe it's because I'm in the space now, but I feel like five years ago when I was getting out, there wasn't nearly as much energy and as many people really focused on starting companies, getting funded, going to, to schools to, to specifically study entrepreneurship as there is now. I mean, now it's just, it's all over the place. And again, that might have a lot to do with that. I'm, I'm in that space, but I didn't know anybody that started their, you know, a company coming directly out of the military and, you know, in 2012, maybe one or two. And now it seems like every week somebody's reaching out to me and, you know, with, with a great idea and that they want to just run it by me. And that makes me feel really good about the direction that we're all going in. Wow. Wow. I love hearing that myself. Now, I think you've given us so much wisdom already, but is there anything else that you feel 
veterans should be aware of, the veterans community should be aware of, or just a push that you know we all need to hear? Yeah, and this would be to the veteran community. And it would be specifically in regards to their interaction with people that are in the middle of a transition or looking to transition sometime in the next few years. Pat on the back and telling them everything is going to be okay, you're doing a huge injustice to them. Okay, It is going to be hard. They are going to be challenged. A lot of people never recover from a transition. So if you tell them that everything's going to be fine and that tons of people are going to want to hire them, you're almost setting expectations too high. And setting expectations is a big part of my job. And really anybody that works in corporate America, you need to understand what other people's expectations are and sort of manage them and guide what their expectations are. And I just think that that sense of entitlement that I talked about before, that's largely driven, not by the veteran, just thinking that they're naturally amazing and and should get everything the first time because they happen in the military, but it's driven by organizations saying, yo, we're going to hire 50,000 veterans over the next 10 years. And friends and family saying, oh man, you're not going to have a problem finding a job. That's not true. They will have a problem finding a job. They will be rejected multiple times. Rejection in the military means a lot, means something completely different than being rejected for a job by a a recruiter, right? One could be life or death and the other is just, well, you got to suck it up and move on. So veterans, I think, naturally deal with rejection well, Um, but certainly getting into corporate America, don't tell them that things are going to be peachy because that's challenge them. Say it's going to be tough. You got to work hard. You got to go and get your degree. You got to network. You got to build your network and and start having informational calls with, I mean, I had a hundred informational calls in the six months leading up to my transition. That's like a, that's like many calls a week. (laughs) I don't know. That's like, you know, five or 10 calls every week that I was having with, with basically anybody that would talk to me for 30 minutes. And I would just ask them for advice. I love that. I would rather manage the expectation, let them prepare for a hard way ahead and show up and find things to be different than like you mentioned, show up thinking everything's going to be cookies and ice cream and there's no free lunches. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Well, Justin, that was everything I had. Is there anything else you'd like to add bring people to how to connect with you on LinkedIn or uh, through TechQualt? Yeah, no. Well, first off, I want to thank you, Bernard, for, I mean, talking about founders. You're a founder. This is your baby, and I think you're doing a great job with it. And that energy and excitement that I was talking about sort of built around the the veteran transition process and, and sort of launching startup coming directly out of the military. I mean, you're a perfect example of that. And you're doing a great thing by letting other people know that it's even a possibility. So this is one of the resources that would I would definitely categorize as something that is niche in that it really focuses on transitions, right? And brings in a lot of great speakers, myself not included in that great speaker category. <laughs> but, you know, people that could add a new lens to the transition process one year out of the transition or 10 years or 25 years. Um, everybody has a different story. So something hopefully of what I said will, will stick with at least one, one of your listeners. That's kind of my hope. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of the co-founders of TechWold. We launched in 2015 out of uh, the Harvard Kennedy School up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, it was started by Jim Sheriff, who's our CEO, and his wife, Karen Sheriff. And then Nick Breedlove is, is the other co-founder. We're, we're the two veterans of the four founders. He's a Navy pilot. I'm a Navy surface warfare officer. 
we're coming up on our two year mark and we've built a program that we feel, you know, is really elevating and enhancing the value of our candidates on the marketplace and providing them with opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have, that they're just simply not qualified coming directly out of the military. So if you want to get in touch with me, I'm Justin at qual.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. would love to chat. All right. Well, thanks again, Justin. Everything you shared is still resonating with me. I have two pages of notes and I just really enjoy your transparency and letting the veterans community know that, hey, you can provide for your family at the level you want to. It will require you to think differently, do the work, build your network, and just really go out there and work for it. And it will all be worth it, but know that you'll have to do the work. Right. Yep. Well, again, have a great day. And thanks again for being on the show. Okay. All right. Thanks, Bernard. Bye.